Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense, sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. I'm your host, Toby Leary. Make sure you visit us each and every week. Go to rapidfireradio.us to subscribe so that when we go live, you'll be alerted like this week, which is an off day. Normally, we go live on Wednesday, but today uh, it's Thursday and we're going live because we didn't get a chance to do it yesterday. So anyway, we're going to do the show today and uh, you want to stay up to date. You want to be notified. So go to rapidfireradio.us and sign up or like and subscribe on all of the social media channels that you use. Our at is Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio, uh, wherever you find your social media. We're on all the usual suspects plus a few others and uh, look forward to talking to you each and every week about all the things going on in gun world. So um, it's been a few weeks since I've had a guest on in the second hour and that's going to be no exception today. We got a lot to talk about and I want to take your questions. Uh, the phone number will be up and running in a few minutes, but if you want to be on the show is 508, uh, I'm sorry, 444-2120. Uh, That's 508-444-2120. As soon as I can get the phone up and running, we'll have that up. And uh, yeah, so we got a big show for you today. A lot going on. We'll take your questions. We'll take your calls and uh, talk about the news of the day. Um I gave a little tease yesterday about, you know, the fact that we were unable to, to do the show. Um, and so I said that, um, we will, we will try to get to, you know, everybody's questions and, and whatnot today. So, um, I'm just getting everything up and running. So I appreciate everyone tuning in. Um, it's been a wild couple of weeks here um, with all the news breaking around the country, uh, lots of legal challenges, lots of gun control still being proposed. Today, we had um, my own senator, not someone I'm real proud of saying that we're a, is my senator, but we have Elizabeth Warren out there that came out with a big um, proposal on ammunition which is just crazy. Um, so she wants to regulate ammunition. She wants to make sure that nobody can buy it for a friend. She wants to make sure that um, that you can't hoard ammunition. You can't buy bulk ammunition. And she wants to advocate for a ammunition registry. So register it. Um, limit it and make sure you don't buy it for anyone else. That's just crazy. Um, so yeah, that's the government at work for you who just can't help themselves. They just love to, um, love to take your rights and throw them out the window. That's exactly right. Um, so Elizabeth Warren is doing what she does best, which is, infringe upon your constitutionally protected rights, all the while uh, standing on her her self-imposed 
moral high ground while she does it. And it's just unbelievable. But anyway, uh, we'll talk about that if time permits. Um, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but you never know. Uh, it might pass the Senate, who knows, but that's the bottom line. So um, there's also some news today about this guy down in Panama who had enough with these people that are blocking the highways, the climate change activists that block the roads. And he told them to move. They wouldn't. And so he ended up gunning them down right in the street and shot them. Both of them died. And uh, it's, it's, I don't think the people deserve to die. Uh, but on the other hand, um, they could also cause death in what they're doing because the, uh, you know, if an ambulance or somebody is on the way uh, to the hospital and they're sitting there worried about whether or not you have the right to buy oil, um, <laughs> you know, they're sitting there blocking emergency response vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's just, it's a terrorist activity, if you ask me, just like the climate activists that are now spray painting priceless art in art galleries. And basically what it all comes down to is they are selfish, entitled uh, brats who have never been told no in their entire life um, and don't know what, what that means. So it's just, it's just ridiculous. But anyway, um, I, I think that that's not the end of this story. I think that may start happening in other parts of the world. You'll see people start driving over them. You'll see people, um, you know, just run them over. And frankly, uh, they're extremely frustrated. And I think it should be treated like terrorism. If you, if you uh, run, if you are blocking traffic on a highway, you're going to suffer the consequences of your actions. It's like, you know, you don't go play in traffic, right? You teach your kids not to touch the stove when it's hot. But yet these people decide to go out and sit in traffic. And, and uh, you know, it's just tragic. I think that they didn't have to die. Um, but anyway, also uh, something I wanted to talk about in Middlesex, um, actually, it was Stoneham. Yesterday, there was somebody, two people were stabbed in Stoneham in Michael Day's district. The guy who brings us the most comprehensive gun control in the history of mankind here in, in America. Um, and he, uh, this, I guess, was two people in the same family that were stabbed. And uh, it's, it's really... Uh, tragic situation and i just wonder if and i'm just throwing this out here as a point of discussion um will he pre be proposing now to ban assault knives uh since two people were stabbed in his district um will will he you know will that be some legislation that'll come up and uh will we will we see people uh having their right to keep and bear knives infringed upon because of 
the stabbing that took place in his district and in his community. I it's a rhetorical question. I know the answer to it. It's no. And uh, we don't do stuff like that because it's illogical. But um, when it comes to guns, we do it all the time. And that's the irony of the situation is the fact that, yes, we, we do it when, uh, when there's guns involved. But we don't do it when it's involving cars. We don't do it when it's involving knives. We don't do it when it's involving baseball bats and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, weigh in on that. You can give me a call. I'm getting the phone system open, 508-444-2120. I got taken to the cleaners a little bit by a, a listener last week that I did a two-hour rant or 80% of the whole show was a rant. And the fact of the matter is, uh, he wanted me to get into more of like what's best for home defense, a, a shotgun or a rifle or a pistol and and talk more um, tech, if you will. And I I tried to tell him, hey, just give me a call. 508-444-2120 is the number. And we'll, you know, go there. And he says, I work for a living, so I have to listen on replay. And I said, oh, okay, fair enough. I get that. Um, but uh, the bottom line is, um, let's let's uh, let's talk, you know, about what you want to talk about, and that way you don't have to worry about what I talk about and whether I rant the whole time or not. So um, sound off in the comments about that. Would you like a little less rant and a little more uh, talk about? holster selection and firearm selection and whatnot. So anyway, we're also going to talk about the pistol brace rule and how that is DOA. It is dead on arrival, which is huge news. It's really um, great news, if you ask me, because um, it's a massive setback to the Biden administration and the ATF who has been getting away with changing the rules as they go at the behest of whatever administration is asking them to. So this has been a subversion of the lawmaking process by the legislature. And Trump really wasn't the first to do it, but he, he kind of made it fashionable with the bump stock ban. And basically an executive branch of government saying, find a way to ban fill in the blank. And that's exactly what happened. And the uh, the bottom line is it, it happened first with the bump stock. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the now they're doing it with the pistol brace and the frame and receiver rule. I love some of the grilling that the legislature had for Stephen Dettelbach when he stood before the or sat before the legislature and said, who gives you the right to change the rules to make the law? But did the legislature ever ban pistol braces? Uh, no, he would say. However, uh, they gave us the authority to uh, regulate arms based on 
the rules that legislature comes up with. And they've been given this wide platitude or wide latitude, if you will, of being able to change the laws by rule changes. And all of these law changes have, or rule changes have, the weight of the federal government on them. So by you not complying with their rule change and take the pistol brace rule, for instance, there's about 40 million of these in existence. The federal government says there's 10 to 12 or 10 to 20 million. But reality is the industry knows how many they've made. And between manufacturers and uh, people buying them to put build themselves, we know there's about 40, 40 million of them in circulation. So uh, they basically would make 40 million felons overnight. Uh, and they really tried to do this by coming up with this factoring. And uh, if it was built and made to originally be shoulder fired and uh, or not, if what's the weight of the gun? Is there optics on it? Is there a vertical foregrip? Is there an angled foregrip? Is there fill in the blank? There was like a million different things. And, and basically, the answer is yes. If it was, I mean, there was very few scenarios where it wouldn't be considered an SBR under the factoring criteria by the ATF. And so this has really uh, been kicked around quite a bit. Um, there's an article today about it on ammoland.com uh, about the pistol brace rule and, and the federal judge stays the entire pistol brace rule. So there was a few groups that were able to get an injunction against enforcement on, on the uh, pistol brace rule. And what's really interesting about that is they, they were told by the ATF, okay, just give us a list of the names of the people in your organization so we know to leave them alone. And they're like, you're not having our list. Are you crazy? That's insanity. And uh, so the ATF wanted to be able to selectively enforce all against all the people who weren't covered by this injunction. So it was GOA, SAF, and FPC all had this injunction. Well, yesterday, the uh, Texas-based federal district court judge issued the nationwide stay preventing the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives from enforcing its rule on pistols equipped with stabilizing braces so or stabilizing devices. So um, we'll talk about this more on the other side. There's a lot to get into. Uh, tons of news out there about guns and gun control and all that good stuff. So uh, I'm glad you're here to talk about it with me. And uh, we will be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. So don't go away. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today.
All right, welcome back. I'm Toby Leary. You're listening to Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. So, um, yeah, again, this is some breaking news here uh, in the in the uh, news world or uh, courts. Breaking news. In the court world, um, the case is Brito v. ATF and it challenged the factoring criteria for firearms with attached stabilizing braces rule. The ATF created the regulation after an executive order by President Joe Biden directing the Bureau to deal with pistol braces. The ATF would reverse years of classification letters and revoke previous determinations issued to brace manufacturers. This is on MOLand.com, by the way. The Brito case, and it's an article by uh, John Crump, Crumpy good friend of the show here. I actually thought about trying to get him on for the second hour, but we definitely need to get him on in the next couple of weeks. Um, so the, the Brito case challenged the rule claiming the ATF pistol brace rule violated the Administrative Procedures Act. The plaintiffs felt that the final rule wasn't a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule. The proposed rule had a point system, ATF form 4999 that helped individuals determine, this is amazing, if their firearm would be considered a braced pistol or a short-barreled rifle. Most of the comments during the public comment period addressed concerns with the form. When the final rule was unveiled, the point system was removed. The ATF considered all braced pistols on the market to be SBRs <laughs> and subject to the National Firearms Act of 1934. Hey, that's one thing. If you've ever met a regulator, they haven't seen a rule that they don't like. That's one thing they do best. They they regulate, right? They enforce rules. That's They love rules. Anyway, um, when the final rule was unveiled, the point system was removed, as I said. Uh, they Oh, and the gun owners had four choices. The first choice was registering the firearm with the ATF per NFA regulations under their deferment or forbearance program. Gun owners would have to provide pictures of the firearms markings, give the government fingerprints, and submit passport pictures to the ATF. Some states, such as California, do not permit NFA firearms, so that was really going to affect them. Uh, the second choice is for gun owners to replace the barrel with a barrel of over 16 inches. This change would make the firearm a rifle regulated under the Gun Control Act of 1968. It would mean that gun owners would have to spend money on expensive rifle parts to bring the firearm into compliance. Third choice was that the gun owner could opt to remove the brace and render it non-reusable, effectively destroying the brace. Um, sorry, if there was someone who just called, I apologize. I'm asleep at the wheel here. Let me let me try and wake this up so that um, um, I notice when somebody calls. Yeah, sorry. Whoever just called me, feel free to call back. Um, but anyway, uh, let's see here. The um, the final choice was for the gun owner to turn in the firearm to the ATF. They would be happy to take it off your hands. Many in the gun world saw this as a forced confiscation by a hostile anti-gun government. Firearms are not cheap, meaning that gun owners might be out several hundred to several thousand dollars. The gun owner chose not to make any of these choices to the ATF caught them. They could be charged with a felony punishable by 10 years in prison. The 
punishment is the same as owning an unregistered machine gun. And that's really the, the crux of the matter is there are millions of unsuspecting people out there that had no idea that this was actually a thing, if you will, that they could wake up one day with a knock at the door and have the ATF on their porches or their doorsteps saying, we understand you have a pistol braced weapon or a braced pistol, which is an unregistered SBR and therefore subject to, um, you know, a $200 tax stamp. And like it said, like John Crump says here in this article that they would be facing the same type of uh, penalty as uh, unregistered machine gunners or a unregistered suppressor or a short barreled shotgun or an AOW or a destructive device. Several factors must be met for a plaintiff to obtain an injunction. The first is the likelihood to succeed on the merits of the case. District Court Judge Matthew Kazimark of the Northern District of Texas Amarillo Division ruled that the plaintiffs had a high likelihood of success. The judge leaned heavily on the Mark v. Garland ruling. In that case, the FPC claimed that the ATF oversteps the boundaries set by the APA, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the plaintiffs in the case, and Judge Kazimark referenced that decision in determining the likelihood of success by the plaintiffs in Brito. He came to the same conclusion as the Fifth Circuit. Given the Fifth Circuit Court's holding, the court recognizes that the rule was not a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule and must be set aside as unlawful. That holding alone establishes that plaintiffs have demonstrated a Fortiori, fortiori, I, I think is how you say it in Latin, an actual success on the merits of their APA challenge to the rule, the decision read. Second factor is whether the plaintiffs would suffer irreparable harm without an injunction. This is really where it gets interesting because one of the plaintiffs in a marina has partially paralyzed arm to a combat injury, the creation of the original stabilizing brace aimed to assist the veteran who suffered an injury in combat. Much like that vet, Mr. Tauscher couldn't shoot his AR-15 pistol without the help of a stabilizing brace. Other gun owners would also suffer harm because the rule doesn't have a grandfather clause. The judge quoted the judge in the Gun Owners of America case challenging the rule. To expand further on the irreparable harm, how about the fact that if you got caught with said device, and you're charged with illegal possession of a short-barreled rifle, um, that would probably make you a prohibited person for life under the current law of the land. Um, so not to mention you'd have to spend all kinds of money to defend yourself and you're facing real jail time. And if the government thought that you did it intentionally or knowingly, then they would bring the whole weight of the Justice Department upon you. Stephen Dettelbach shined his seat when he was really directly asked these questions during the uh, House committee hearing. And he would they would say, do you really want to put someone in jail who unknowingly has a pistol brace on his pistol? And he would say, oh, well, uh, you know, Representative, um, uh, we would never, ever, ever charge somebody who was didn't realize that they were in violation of this law. We would give them every opportunity to comply 
and make it right, we would never descend upon their house with the full authority of the Justice Department like we did in Waco, Texas, and like we did at Ruby Ridge. Those were anomalies that like that kind of thing would never happen in this modern day and age. Uh, you know, we, we've learned from our mistakes when people defy gun control law, not to bring the paramilitary organization down upon them. Uh, you know, obviously I added all that last stuff, but go back and look at some of the questioning and he makes it sound like that could never happen. Under the fi final rule, compliance will almost always come at a cost. When the Fifth Circuit sent Mock back to the district court, the court evaluated the irreparable harm, if any, that several private plaintiffs in the case would suffer because the Mock plaintiffs owned firearms and stabilizing braces that the final rule would classify as an SBR. The plaintiffs had no trouble establishing a substantial threat of irreparable harm in the form of non-recoverable compliance costs. Same is true here, the judge wrote. The final step to get the injunction to prove is to prove that the injunction is in the public interest. The judge found that since the rule is not a logical outgrowth of the APA, it is most likely illegal. The government cannot use public interest to defend an unlawful rule. Therefore, the public interest falls on the side of the plaintiffs. Because of these reasons, Judge Casamark stayed the rule in its entirety. The ATF is likely to appeal the decision. FPC, GOA, and SAF members were the only ones to whom the previous injunctions applied. Now protections extend to everyone in the nation. So this is really good. I'm going to put the uh, text of this into the comments because um, John Crump included the whole decision, if you want to read it, um, in the in the uh, article at the at the bottom of the article. So if you want to read the judge's decision, um, that last part that we just talked about, the interest balancing, this is very interesting because since Bruin, you can no longer, and I would say uh, even since Heller, you really couldn't use interest balancing, but the courts continued to because of their ability to get away with it. So in a post-Heller world, there were still very few successful legal challenges to gun control uh, because interest balancing continued to be kind of the law of the land, even though Heller really threw that out. But because they didn't direct the, as Mark Smith so uh, aptly points out, the inferior courts on the paint-by-number, step-by-step um, instructions on how they have to deal with gun control cases now, they were basically left to be the wild, wild west. So you had district courts, you had appeals courts, all ruling differently across the country on gun control cases. And so this interest balancing approach is what has got Massachusetts and other states the gun control schemes that it has to its to the extent that it has. So we have had interest balancing approach to all gun control in this state for decades and decades. And whenever um, it was challenged at district court level, either the case was thrown out or it was ruled against. 
And now people had to choose to appeal it higher to the First Circuit or all the way up to the Supreme Court, like the one that um, went to the Supreme Court before Bruin um, and before the Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in. So there was a unknown majority of, you know, it could have been uh, f four to four with the Chief Justice Roberts going either way. You really didn't know. But then once um, Amy Coney Barrett was uh, sworn in, then it was like, okay, we have a 6-3 now. So it, it was it was a pretty odd, or it could have been 5-4 if Roberts went the other way. So at least they would still have a majority. So before Barrett was on the court, and I talked about that on the show, that um, people like, uh, Garland, and, I'm sorry, not Garland, Freudian slip Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas might have said, let's not take this case. And I'm talking about the Warman v. Healy, which was the um, assault weapons ban and uh, magazine capacity ban that got challenged. Uh, basically, it, it challenged uh, Healy's enforcement notice to the assault weapons ban and um, all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they chose not to grant cert on it. Uh, so I, I speculated then that it could be because of the unknown majority of the outcome, it would be better to punt on this case than to take it and lose and have it be the law of the land forever. So that was probably a good decision on the part of the Supreme Court because then along the way came the Bruin decision. So since Bruin, interest balancing is no longer a thing. Justice Clarence Thomas so eloquently wrote that the two-step approach is no longer appropriate. It's one step too many for something that is an enumerated right in the U.S. Constitution. So you have to revert back to the Heller mandate of text, history, and tradition, which Bruin so adequately explained. And that is the test that you must follow for any and all gun control. You can no longer use tiers of scrutiny. You can no longer use interest balancing. You can no longer use any type of two-step approach or... Uh, you know, some sort of scrutiny that isn't strict scrutiny. So there you have it. Um, and I think with that, a lot of gun control cases will fall, uh, hopefully. So anyway, uh, we'll talk more about this on the other side. We'll get to your questions soon. And uh, if you want to be a part of the show, it's 508-444-2120. We'll be right back. I'm Toby Leary. Federal ammunition is 100. This is where the American ingenuity met a trailblazing spirit. Hard work united with patriotism and technology blended with new ideas. That's federal ammunition. Right here in Anoka, Minnesota, born in 1922, made in America, and proud to be the best. Federal ammunition, a century of innovation. And we're only getting started. Welcome back to Rapid Fire. I'm your host, Toby Leary. And thank you for joining us. Make sure you like and subscribe to all of our social media content. 
so that we can defeat the evil algorithm that is constantly trying to keep good con content down. And I know this is true because of the growth I've had on X. If you're not following us on X, please do. Um, we haven't really done much with them until the last few months, and we have grown exponentially on X um, versus the onesie twosies we get on all the traditional big tech platforms. So like and subscribe, hit the notification bell, share, comment, and spread the word far and wide. At Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio are putting out some pretty cool content. And uh, would love it if you'd, if you'd join us and all of that. So um, that's really uh, what we have to look, look at on the pistol brace rule. So that, that's really good. How this really impacts people in Massachusetts. Because for the most part, the assault weapons ban takes care of the fact that we can't really have any braced pistol in this state because it you know the the assault weapons ban definition makes it so you can't have an ar pistol an ak pistol or a cz scorpion pistol or a fill in the blank any um good quality um pistol that you could throw a brace on and have a a really cool either pistol caliber carbine or a uh sub-sized version of the rifle um and but recently we kind of i'd say in the last few years maybe five six years we figured out why this really is important to us in massachusetts when you saw the definition of um a pistol in the coyote hunting regulations you realized hey wait a minute I can actually hunt coyote with any pistol that has a caliber. This is the craziest definition, but a caliber less than 38, which is really nine millimeter, but any case dimension, which is less than 38 caliber. So where it's measured is around the brass case, not the bullet which is ridiculous. I guess cuz they're thinking maybe you could have like a um a big uh case and a smaller bullet. So if the case is bigger than 9 millimeter or 38 caliber like maybe a 300 Win Mag or something like that. But we're again, we're talking pistols here. So who's shooting a 300 Win Mag pistol or a 338 Winchester Magnum pistol or whatever? I have a feeling it was someone who's just doesn't understand firearms and was completely asleep at the wheel. Um, but anyway, because of that, you could have like a 300 blackout or a 223 AR pistol as long as it doesn't meet the definition of assault weapon. So what meets the definition of assault weapon? It has to have a detachable magazine. So what happened was we started to make these um fixed magazine AR-15s. I know uh, there's a couple guys in Massachusetts that did them early on, and 
started producing them. Then uh, there's a few national manufacturers like Dark Storm Industries and Franklin Armory that started making them. And we decided, hey, this is a good thing to sell because it'll get people a brand new modern sporting rifle, an AR-15 that doesn't have a detachable magazine. And now they can have all the other evil features. They can have collapsible stocks. They can have bayonet lugs. They can have th threaded barrels. They can have, uh, you know, vertical foregrips, all, all the other stuff, right? Um, and so because it doesn't have a detachable mag, it doesn't meet the definition of assault weapon. So it's now legal to have. So now you put a stabilizing brace on it. And the ATF had ruled back in 2015 or whatever it was that you could shoulder this weapon. So you could shoulder fire your fixed mag AR pistol. And now you had tons of Picatinny rail on top. So as long as your barrel was under 14 and a half or under 16 inches, you, it would be considered a pistol. You have plenty of pick rail, you have plenty of handrail to mount a thermal or mount a, a night vision scope for hunting at night with coyotes. Uh, because um, you couldn't use a high powered rifle and you can't use artificial light so a 22 was really ridiculous to hunt coyotes with at night because of the lack of power and uh you know it was tough to uh, hunt coyotes at night so it really changed the game for a lot of people and now tons of people have built these fixed mag pistols well guess what happened as soon as you put a thermal on top or a night vision scope on top and you have a bipod and you have uh you know a bait pile and coyotes out there and now all of a sudden you can't have a pistol brace and shoulder it that's a major thing that's a problem so it 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 would be almost impossible to use it anymore um i guess with a bipod you probably could but it's it's crazy so something to think about um anyway we've kind of talked about about that quite a bit but I want to talk about um, something else I read today, uh, and that is that uh, an article by Larry Keene, an opinion piece about the ATF director revealing a change of course as it comes to um, gun control. So Dettelbach, when he was being questioned in the before the Senate and before the House, uh, they would try to get him to define what an assault weapon is. And he'd say, oh, that's whatever Congress comes up with. You guys are the ones that make the rules. We just enforce them. Well, uh, guess what? He is now saying that he supports assault weapons ban as proposed by Joe Biden. And uh, he, he told an audience at Harvard's Gun Violence in America discussion that he agreed with gun control advocates on a pursuit of a ban of modern sporting rifles and universal background checks. Uh, that is a break from previous congressional testimony where he testified that he would apply the law and not advocate for new ones. He said, I did talk about restrictions on assault weapons, Senator Dettelback told Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, I did not define the term and I haven't gone through the process of defining the term. He said that would only be for Congress if it chose to take that up to do. Oh, really? But what if Joe Biden asks you to change the rule like he did on the pistol brace and the frame and receiver? Would you do it then, Steve? 
Come on, Steve, be honest with us. Director Dettelbach didn't hesitate having that discussion in Cambridge, Mass. He took the unprecedented steps of calling for the adoption of that very law, something no ATF director has ever done before. The president has also said, and I agree that we should consider and reinstate a ban on certain types of assault weapons, Dettelbach said. He hedged and added, it's Congress that should define what that term means. But the director knows that Congress has not banned the commonly owned firearms. The 1994 assault weapons ban expired in 2004. And since Congress hasn't attempted to send a bill banning the most popular selling centerfire rifle to the president. That's true for when either party held majorities in the House and the Senate, respectively, including when Democrats controlled the House, Senate, and the White House. Director Dettelbach's references to assault weapons are, of course, the AR-15 style semi-automatic rifles or modern sporting rifles. President Joe Biden has repeatedly called for the firearms to be banned and Vice President Kamala Harris added her support for reinstating a ban. The calls for banning more than 24.4 million MSRs in circulation are happening against the backdrop of elevated levels of unlawful, excuse me, of lawful firearm purchases. They're also at a time when more Americans oppose such a ban and millions of Americans, including millions of first-time gun buyers purchasing AR-15 style rifles, as their preferred firearm for self-defense, recreational target shooting, and hunting. MSR uses the same one-trigger pull, one-round-fired technology common in firearms for over a century. Um, the director also called for implementing uh, a universal background check system he knows is prohibited by law and wouldn't be workable without a nationwide firearms registry. He and the administration have been clear they're plainly unlawful, proposed, rule-defining, engaged in the business, would make hundreds of thousands of gun owners criminals if they don't become licensed dealers. This is intended to be a giant step toward universal background checks. That's another whole side of the discussion, which the ATF has entered into by uh, rule change or by edict, if you will, that, well, let's back up. I would say it's not all the ATF's fault. Um, the Safer Communities Act, the bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed that the Democrats are doing victory laps with right now as the uh, bipartisan, they always refer to it as um, Safer Communities Act, where they are basically redefining what a gun dealer is. So if you sell a gun for a profit, whether it's a dollar or 50 cents more than you paid for it, what if you buy an investment grade gun at a good, you got a good deal on it and it was solely for investment purposes and you're able to make 500 or $1,000 off that gun if you sell it, you're now a gun dealer under the bipartisan safer communities act and so that's their that's their backdoor policy for universal background checks they're going to say if you sell this gun for a profit you are now in the business of buying and selling guns and you are 
a gun dealer. Goes on to talk about director veteran smear, director's veteran smear, uh, that'll back change of policy positioning to advocate for unconstitutional gun bans on an entire class of firearms owners over the using the tools Congress gives him wasn't the only troubling remark. He misrepresented the tragedy in Lewiston, Maine to attack a Senate amendment that would forbid Department of Veteran Affairs bureaucrats from unilaterally robbing veterans of their Second Amendment rights if they need assistance managing their finances. Sadly, he did this by conflating that with those deemed mentally defective by a court who are not the same. Let me talk a little bit about what happened before that Lewiston tragedy and what happened after that happened to put a sort of context on this director, Dettel Black, attempted to explain. So before that, just a few hours before that, actually, the United States Senate voted to pass a measure, which the goal of the measure was to lower barriers for veterans who had been found to be incompetent to maintain their right to keep and possess firearms. Moderator, uh, moderator Caroline Light, who authored a book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, nodded along in approval with the director's suggested connection between the tragic murders in the Maine and the Senate vote. The Senate measure was U.S. Senator John Kerry, Republican of Louisiana's amendment protecting military veterans' Second Amendment rights from Department of Veteran Affairs overreach, which Breitbart had reported. Companion legislation sponsored by uh, Representative Mike Bost, uh, Bost of Republican of Illinois had already passed the U.S. House of Representatives in a vote that garnered near unanimous Republican support. The policy did not have the goal of lowering barriers for veterans who had been found to be incompetent from keeping their Second Amendment rights. The legislation, the Veterans Second Amendment Protection Act, prohibits the Veterans Affairs Department from quietly adding names of veterans who require financial supervision. This is known as fiduciary to the FBI National Instant Criminal Background Check System database as prohibited individuals. Ironically, if you lose your fiduciary responsibility, you can continue to be a U.S. senator and make laws that will ban people like you and I from whatever they deem you should be banned from. As Senator Fian, uh, Fian Dienstein, yeah, Diane Feinstein <laughs> uh, had, you know, and she's the late senator now. Uh, so, you know, maybe uh, I don't want to besmirch the dead, but frankly, that's what happened. She did not have fiduciary responsibility and her daughter became a, a conservator of her or her guardian, um, but she was still being wheeled in for votes and obviously very, very confused about that even when they were telling her to just say I. And she's like, what? No, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about it. No, just say I. And she's like, uh, I, I guess. You know, it was it was pretty sad to see, actually. But the point is, they want to take away veterans who might have uh, some issues regarding their own personal finances, right to keep and bear arms away by adding them to this national instant check system database. Um, and thankfully, some people stood up and defended that. Um, but, you know, the leave it to gun grabbers to 
conflate the argument and point to dead bodies and say, see, this is why we need to fill in the blank, uh, ban this, ban that. Uh, and they constantly will move the goalposts. In a state like Massachusetts where they got their their way 99% of the time and and we have an omnibus bill that is has been passed in the House and now is headed to the Senate, um, they're never happy. And obviously it doesn't work, so they just continually move the goalposts. They move the chains down the field and advance towards total confiscation and outright gun ban, period. And they've been told by five different court decisions, unlawful and unconstitutional. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break here because I want to talk lastly before the second hour about the Rahimi case, which is very, very important. So um, the Rahimi case is the uh, the one that um, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari and they're hearing oral arguments on right now as we speak. So, all right, we will be back after this. You're listening to Rapid Fire. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. I'm Toby Leary, your host. Please like and subscribe on all the social media out there at Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio. All right. So like I said, um, the Supreme Court has heard the argument in the United States v. Rahimi on Tuesday. Uh, Rahimi is the Second Amendment case that Merrick Garland, the president, Biden's attorney general, pushed to get to the Supreme Court because he's hoping to take advantage of defendant Zachary Rahimi's odious background. Garland and the anti-gunners, and by the way, this is our friend Mark Smith from Four Boxes Diner who wrote this article on ammoland.com. You can check it out there. Um, and Garland and the anti-gunners considered the Rahimi case their best chance to get out, to gut out or water down the text and history methodology set forth by the United States Court uh, Supreme Court in District of Columbia v. Heller and NYSERPA v. Bruin based on the justices' questions during oral argument. I doubt that Gar Garland's strategy will succeed. So the Rahimi case involves a Second Amendment challenge to the federal gun control statute 18 USC 922 G8, which provides that individuals subject to state-based domestic violence restraining orders are prohibited from possession of a firearm anywhere in the United States for the duration of that order. The federal law is a nationwide ban. To illustrate, it would ban the possession of firearms by a person living in Arizona, even when a restraining order was entered in Maine. According to court records, Mr. Rahimi lived in Texas and admitted. So give you the background. The guy sounds like he was a scumbag. He admitted to 
um, well, he voluntarily entered into this restraining order where he would surrender his right to keep and bear arms. And um, he was found to have a gun or shoot a gun later on. And uh, so that's why Garland really pushed to get this case up to the Supreme Court. But what's amazing is on Tuesday, the Solicitor General Elizabeth uh, Prologer uh, argued against Matthew Wright, the public defender representing Rahimi. Um, and Mark Smith takes the position that uh, they made a epic blunder in this case in how they presented it. Um, they think that Rahimi will lose the case, but the government will lose the war, basically, because the way the case was brought to the Supreme Court was basically, is it legal on its face to deny somebody their right to keep and bear arms uh, if they are of a particular dangerous character? And I think that the Supreme Court will probably rule that it's legal on its face without getting into the nuance of it. Um, but that isn't what wins the war for the U.S. government. What would have won the war for the U.S. government is if they could have uh, got the the Supreme Court to acknowledge that uh, that banning guns from people with a restraining order is constitutional, but that's not really how it all came up. So um, he goes on to say, I expect the Supreme Court will rule for the government on narrow grounds, finding that 18 U.S.C. 922 G8 is facially constitutional, but it will only find that this to be uh, to the extent that it applies to physically violent, dangerous individuals. And while the media may try to portray this as a setback for gun rights, it won't be true. In fact, it may be the opposite. So the Solicitor General was actually saying that um, only individuals that violate the law will have their rights taken away. And so the the Supreme Court kind of was like, are you saying people who speed and, you know, break the law for going five miles an hour over the speed limit will now lose their gun rights? And then she had to reel it back and change her uh, explanation and say, oh, no, no, we're really talking about just very dangerous people. And it's like, why didn't you say that in the first place? And that in is where the the nuance of this really, um, really you know, comes the, where the rubber meets the road, because frankly, they want to be able to take guns away from anyone for being non-law abiding. And my buddy, Rob Pincus, for years has been saying, stop using the term law abiding, because frankly, if that is the definition or the standard by which we are able to own guns, anyone who ever breaks the law would disqualify themselves. And I think he's right. He's on to something there. Like that isn't the nature of the law. Like if you violate um, some law along the way, you don't surrender your second amendment rights because you speed or because you drove through a red light or because you jaywalk, right? That doesn't, you don't have to be a perfect person to ensure that your constitutionally protected rights are intact. That isn't the standard here. 
The standard is if you're a violent threat to others, then yeah, okay. Government has a historical tradition of taking away your firearms with due process. But um, so that's really what it comes down to. Um, so they might have shot themselves in the foot and really uh, screwed themselves up. And they wanted separation from, I think, the the Brian Range case where the guy who, you know, violated some child support but became a prohibited person or kited a check or something uh, and became a prohibited person in the uh, in the process. They wanted that separation, but now the door is open for them to combine that and look at 922 G1 as well as 922 G8. So there's a lot of nuance to it and a lot of geeky law, if you will. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, I think that this is, uh, you know, really, um, it doesn't look like it's going to be a setback in light of Bruin, uh, you know, and I know why they presented it the way they did, because they're really trying to get back to arguing the merits of Heller and uh, Bruin, but they they lost their chance because of how they did it. Um, it says here, uh, however, the arguments advanced by the DOJ and Rahimi may have just sunk the DOJ's argument to delay hearing the range case. At oral argument, the Solicitor General admitted that the Rahimi case and range cases present distinctly different issues. And the Rahimi involves irresponsible people while range involves people who are not law-abiding. Justice Amy Coney Barrett quickly flagged this when she mentioned the range case by name. See oral argument TR 50. The Second Amendment community should hope that the Supreme Court agrees to hear the range case because it will likely result in another victory for the Second Amendment and further reduction of the number of Americans who may be disarmed legally. This is huge for Massachusetts because Massachusetts has a long history of making prohibited people for nonviolent offenses. Namely, the first one is the uh, the misdefelony of first offense OUI. So if you are found to be um, a first-time offender of an OUI and Massachusetts, you wait 90 days, you get your license back. But guess what you don't get back? Your right to keep and bear arms for life, no matter what state you move to. So a lot of people I hear all the time, oh, I just got to move out of Massachusetts. Well, if you've got that first offense uh, conviction of a OUI, then you're, you're a prohibited person for life because that first offense carries a sentence of two and a half years in jail, which puts it into the felony um, category, even though it's technically a misdemeanor. So um, they basically make you a felony and a, therefore a prohibited person for life for first offense OUI. And some people will plead that out, not realizing that because they just don't want to deal with the issue. They'll wait the 90 days, get their license back, and then move on, whether or not they were actually you know, operating under the influence. They might have refused the breathalyzer and then gone to trial or whatever. And um, they, you know, pled it out. But the bottom line is they just pled away their constitutionally protected rights for life. So this is where uh, that 922 G1 case is really important because 
Um, it can, you know, ban people like Brian Range was banned for life because he kited a check or something like that, some nonviolent misdemeanor. So that's really where the status of being a perfect individual comes into play. And, you know, frankly, uh, none of us can live up to that standard. Your rights don't come and go based on your ability to get the right, get things right every single time. They, they just don't. They can't ban your right to vote. They can't ban your right to uh, peacefully attend uh, a, a protest or, or go to church or, you know, speak in public because you jaywalk or you speed or you, um, you know, wrote a bad check when you were younger. Um, but they love to apply that same standard to you and I. So as promised, we're going to get to your comments and questions on the other side. Um, I'm Toby Leary. I appreciate you guys listening to this show. Make sure uh, we got another whole hour and we're going to really get interactive here. But make sure you like and subscribe on all the social media at Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire. In-depth we will be right dive back. On, on a review of this gun. But here in Massachusetts, as you know, we have all kinds of legislation pending on what guns you will be able to or won't be able to buy in the future. And under the current legislation, any semi-automatic with a detachable magazine will be, you'd be unable to buy. So the time is now. However, this rifle here is a really well thought out pistol caliber carbine. It has AR style controls. So it's familiar if you are familiar with an AR-15. But what makes this really unique is it's a direct blowback uh, pistol caliber carbine in 9mm and the magwell is changeable. So they made a, a great function on this rifle where you can change this magwell to multiple different magazines like from SIG and from Glock and everything else. It comes with the one that will take the M&P mags. So if you have any of the M&P pistols from compact to full size, it'll fit right out of the box. You can send away and get these extra magwells for Glock, for SIG and whatnot. And so we'll pin the stock to your length of pull wherever you want that. But this is a great gun at a very affordable price, by the way, for from Spring uh, from Smith & Wesson. And uh, it has the M&P grip with the back strap like you find on their pistols as well. Flat face trigger, plenty of pick rail, M-lock handguard. So it's a super cool gun. Come check it out. And if you want this at a special deal, go to rapidfireradio.us, scroll down to Gun of the Week, and click on Gun of the Week and put G-O-W in at checkout. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on Rapid Fire. All right. So there you have that. Pretty cool gun. All right. Welcome back. This is Rapid Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Sorry about the glitchy nature of that last video. That uh, I'll have to think about how to get that better next time. I think if I go with less high-quality video, I can push it down a little bit and still get it to play at decent quality for you guys. So anyway, um, rapid fires, your weekly show, all things, guns, freedom, second amendment and self-defense. Happy you're here. We're sponsored by Vortex Optics and USCCA. And 
check them out whenever you get a chance. Go over to uscca.co slash rapid fire to have a great deal by the uscca so anyway uh happy you're here and we're going to get to your questions and comments um as soon as we right now starting now so yes um let's start off with uh 500 Magnum says, have I seen the 22 LR jackhammer? It's a tricked out Tommy gun, pretty cool, and doesn't have a stock, and it's a bit pricey for a 22. I have not seen that. I'll have to check it out, 500. That sounds like a pretty pretty cool little gun, um, but no, I haven't. Um, yeah, and uh, ASD says, does Liz Warren's ammo bill include arrows? Yeah, because uh, she is the fake Indian. So um, it, it, that's a great question because uh, there, there you go. I'm a little late on the rim shot, but uh, and yeah, here we go again. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's see. Uh, she, uh, we all know how she got into Harvard, right? Um, the high cheekbones. That was it. High cheekbones. Liawatha up to her old tricks. Vote out all of them. Yeah, no kidding. Chosen one. All right. Uh, am I getting uh, censored on YouTube again? Oh, man. Oh, I think he's just commenting on my comment. But let's see. We all know I'm getting censored. But uh, this is a good point here. Cape Cod says, what does any of these laws do to help mental health or stop illegal firearms from ending up in teenagers' hands? who live across America. Zero. It is the solution in search of a problem. And I'm going to try not to go on a rant again, but that's true. Um, so, uh, and chosen one, you got a good point here. The best home defense weapon is the one you train with and are efficient with. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, because you're if you're not going to um, train with it, then you're not going to be efficient with it. And, you know, just having a gun in the home is not enough. You got to know how to use it and defend yourself with it. So um, the good news is we're pretty good at improvisation, but that's not an effective self-defense strategy. None of us would be okay with our military just trying to improvise on the battlefield. We want them trained. We want them tactile and efficient. And, uh, you know, that they can uh, be better than the enemy. Let's put it that way. Uh, Rob, yeah, we talked about this earlier. The possible ammo ban. Uh, keep hearing Elizabeth Warren wanted to ban it and track all ammo purchases and background checks. What is the time frame? Well, she introduced the bill. Ironically, it's like, I think it's Bill S3223. What? Are you kidding me? That's, uh, was that done on purpose? Ah! I think so. But no, probably not. But ironically, it's Bill H, I'm sorry, S3223. Um, you can't make this stuff up. But uh, I don't know what the time frame is of them picking it up and debating it. It might end up in committee it might die there it might never make it out i don't know but 
basically the long and short of it is they want to ban bulk ammunition purchases, ban purchasing ammo for friends or family. You will have to be the purchaser for yourself. So they're trying to come up with some straw purchase type of thing for ammunition. And uh, lastly, they want to create some ammo registry, which is just ridiculous. So having some ammo registry, uh, maybe that's their way of saying, okay, we can't do a gun ban registry or we can't do a gun registry, but let's do an ammo registry. You see the same thing happen all the time with in banned states with magazines and, you know, they, they did that in Massachusetts with the H4420, HD4420. When it was first proposed, it had a magazine serialization and barrel serialization. And uh, they want to keep track of the stuff that they know won't pass constitutional muster around firearms. But if they can get it to be on the accessories or the barrels or the uh, magazine or the ammo. And basically all of this boils down to protected arms under the second amendment. It is constitutional. It's constitutionally protected because of its common and ordinary status. It, you know, ammo is part of the arms. If you, you can't ban ammo and then say, Oh yeah, you can have arms, but you just can't have ammo. Like that's not a thing. Uh, but that's what they're doing. They're grasping at straws to get around things that will make it so that they won't be able to, uh, you know, the, the things they know they won't be able to get to. They're trying to just set roadblocks and pitfalls and potholes for other things. And they're trying to outsmart it, but it's not going to outsmart any of it. Uh, these laws do nothing but empower criminals and lunatics to be able to wreak havoc among law-abiding citizens. No doubt about it. I believe uh, that double stabbing was something started on social media. Okay. I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I'd have to look into that. And that's the stabbing in Stoneham, Michael Day's district. And in the first hour, I asked the question, will he now try to propose a ban on knives? Because there was a double stabbing in Stoneham in his hometown. But we all know the answer to that. ATF just goes after gun owners. No more busting teens for sneaking a six-pack or carton of smokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think they're worried about that. They're just, yeah, they're focused on. I mean, I, I think they've been known to crack down on people who go to the reservation and buy, like, cases of cigarettes tax-free and then try to sell them on the black market. I find that hysterical that they would do that. And I find it hysterical that people actually go to that effort too. Um, but I remember that hearing about that, these sting operations to try to bust people who are getting around the, the government's taxation of tobacco by going to the Indian reservations and buying cases full and bringing them back. So, you know, they're out there making sure all the taxes are paid. Um, that's what they do. In Springfield, Massachusetts, I got my firearms course in the fire beginning of October. My appointment for the Springfield Police Department is all the way in January on the 24th. Such a long time. You bring up a great thing, and I almost forgot. I'm glad I didn't, but I hope I can find it because um, the Michael Day has started.
started something on his uh, Facebook page, which frankly is hysterical because he has started um, to basically break down what's in the bill. Uh, I got to find this. Uh, and the first thing that he came up with was, um, was oh, I'm not going to be able to find it, am I? Um, of course, you type in Michael Day and, oh, here we go. Yes, I found it. Awesome. So firearms training, he started posting all the attributes of his bill that got passed. And the first thing he wants to talk about is the current requirements for getting an LTC, the current ones. Now think about if this is not a solution in search of a problem. Requirements are you must be 21 years old to get an LTC. You must pass a background check. You must complete a classroom-based basic firearm safety course with a certified instructor. It enables you to purchase handguns and long guns. The cost of application is $100. They don't mention the cost of the course. And the length it is valid for is six years. That's not good enough. What they're proposing is, oh, this is for the, uh, it's basically the same thing for the LTC. And what they're proposing is, um, all right, so the problem with the current system, this is the problem. Classroom-based course. There's no live fire or hands-on training required. Baloney on the hands-on training part. Courses vary across the state. We can't have that. We can't have one teacher teaching one thing and another teacher teaching another thing. And the shortest certified course is just four hours long. You know, they talk about all the time about they love to compare guns with driving. And you're required to have a license to drive. Of course, you should be required to have a license to buy a firearm. But I don't know of any road test that's four hours long. You don't have to go driving for four hours. You don't have to take a four-hour classroom class. You don't have to pass a background check. You don't have to submit to a photographs and fingerprints. You don't have to submit to an interview and give a reason why you want to drive your car. So four hours long is not good enough. And the curriculum requirements are limited. And it lacks violence prevention and de-escalation training. So under the new bill, it adds the following topics to curriculum framework, injury prevention and harm reduction. So for every law, the legislature is required to show a need. And the bottom line is they can't show a need for this. If they could show a need, they would be able to point to hundreds, if not thousands of people dying a year because of inadequate training and because of inadequate knowledge on how to operate their firearm because the current firearms licensing scheme is inadequate. So they want to give injury prevention and harm reduction training, active shooter and emergency response, use of force, de-escalation and disengagement. And they want to mandate live firearms training and require passage of uniform written exam created by the state police. 
So now the state police, an unelected bureaucratic agency or an enforcement agency, will now write this curriculum that will be uniform and apparently be eight hours long with live fire training. But this new changes only apply to first-time applicants. Okay, so this bill proactively enhances public safety, even though they can't point to any situations where people are dying because of the lack of this type of training. It reduces the risk of accidents, negligent discharges, and mishandling, ensures licensees know how to safely use firearms they possess, <clears throat> de-escalation training and responding to a shooting as a civilian. Uh, <laughs> this is just unbelievable. Um, it also, oh, and then they have a, a graphic here. I'm going to see if I can get this on, um, on my screen so I can show you guys. But uh, let's see. I'm not very good at this. Nah, let's see. All right, there we go. So um, 18 states require live fire training already. And obviously, as you can see from this, Massachusetts is not one. Oh, that's terrible. Massachusetts is not one. Cry your eyes out. And But here's where it gets good. I want to show you this. Many courses already offer live fire training. Mass firearm school, South Shore gun training, first round academy, SSD, tactical training, and Cape Gunworks. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yes. The guy who wants to take away your right to keep and bear arms is actually using my shop as a reason why we should continue to offer live fire training because it's already being done at these fine shops and more. And the difference is, um, the difference, you don't have to, uh, it's not government mandated, right? We choose to do it because people who want it it's proving that they're already way more responsible than they're giving credit for. Um, but the point is the, the industry is doing a phenomenal job of training new gun owners without government mandate. And because government can't point to where people are being killed because of this lack of training, it is totally unconstitutional. And the bottom line is, uh, I resent the fact that they're trying to use me as the hammer and the bludgeon to get this training enacted as a government mandate. So anyway, thank you, B. Allen, for getting me uh, down that rabbit trail. But I'm glad you reminded me of that because I forgot about that. And it's just, I think it's hysterical, actually. 
Um, and I know that this is his way of giving the needle back, you know, sh putting the shiv up under my rib cage and twisting it around because I was one of the most outspoken people about uh, Michael Day's proposal here and this unconstitutional drivel. The good news is none of this will stand the test of time. The bad news is we got to spend money to try to get it struck down in court or hopefully a preliminary injunction. Uh, and we could go back to that whole pistol brace uh, injunction that was granted and show the four part of, parts of the equation because are we likely to win on the merits of the case? Yes. You know, that, can you prove irreparable harm? Yes. Uh, so on and so forth. So um, we might have injunctive relief if it does go through the Senate. But all right, let's check it out. Uh, B. Allen says, I already had or have my Connecticut hunting license. Just need to switch over. But they're making me take the live fire class on the handgun course. It's unbelievable. Um, from behind enemy lines in the People Re People's Republic of Communist Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, I used to call it Maskanistan. <laughs> uh, but I think Afghanistan, that might be an insult to Afghanistan, which is sitting on $80 billion worth of military arms from the United States, and they're driving down the streets and flying Black Hawk helicopters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we talked about this, Robert, um, a bunch already today. Um, so um, it's been introduced into the Senate. I don't think it'll go anywhere, but you never know. What my, all right, so here's a good question. Duncan says, wondering what your bedside RV weapon might be. I was thinking shotgun with mini shells. Um, kind of. Uh, not exactly. I don't want to handle it, but this one behind me right there is the Honey Badger Q. Um, if, you know, we didn't have to worry about NFA rules, that would be my my RV gun uh, or my bedside gun. It's a 300 blackout integrally suppressed AR that is fun to shoot and uh, quiet. I like the idea of not blowing my eardrums out in a self-defense situation. Um, I like the idea of having the same rate of fire as a regular AR-15 and a 5.56, um, which is, you know, the same with a 30 cal and have a 208 grain um, subsonic uh, bullet, if you will, um, so that I don't blow out my eardrums and um, knock down power, if you will. So. That would be my RV gun or my bedside gun if it weren't for government overreach and regulation and unconstitutional acts. So um, let's see. I finally made it to the range last weekend to zero some rifles and pistols. So things are very good. That's awesome. Glad to hear that skilled. Um, and Duncan had a nice range trip himself. Create another monster. The guy he took has been to the store to get a new AR. That's excellent. Keep spreading the word and get bring your friends and neighbors and family out to shoot. And that's the only way we preserve our rights in perpetuity is to get people shooting that will fall in love with it and come out and do it. Because otherwise, 
it's going to go away someday. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to get my friend into a non-fixed mag. He's one of the poor souls who got scared into getting one. Well, I don't mind this, Skilled, because frankly, you get a lot of bang for the buck. So you can get like a brand new Franklin Armory or DSI for 1200 bucks, And you're getting good state-of-the-art, you know, gun without breaking the bank. And when the ban finally goes away, you can make it for $99 or $120 to change over and lower. Now you got a really good quality AR. But some people who, you know, want the pre-ban so that they can make it into what they want. They're going to be into it three grand by the time it's all said and done, probably plus, because you can buy a pre-ban AR for 2,500 to three grand, but it's usually in its pre-ban configuration with a A2 handguard and a front sight post and, you know, the old school CAR stock, two position car stock, but whatever. Anyway, um, so yeah. Not a big thing. Um, I don't mind the fixed mag AR as a foot in the door, especially if you're using it for hunting or for training or whatever, just a range toy. Um, and if you want something that's a good self-defense or home defense gun, get a pistol caliber carbine. You don't need to have 223 to be, um, you know, adequate home protection. Uh, Dishonorable discharge means no LTC. Go to war for the U.S. shooting machine guns, rockets, etc. Get into a beef with superiors. Some barroom brawls, etc. End up with a dishonorable discharge means no more shooting for you. That's a good point. So that would be good to see that uh, that go through. And, um, you know, that Brian Gage case. So uh, companies that sells self-defense insurance wants you to be scared of the legal process so you'll be more likely to buy their insurance. Um, in light of this fact, what is the actual percentage of self-defense defenders involved in shootings in Massachusetts and or the USA charged with a crime? More percent of those convicted. It's not necessarily the fear of conviction. You might get off, Billy. Where the insurance really comes in handy is the the cost of litigation let's put it this way in texas a very gun-friendly state where you had uh the guy who shot the the man who came into the church to kill everybody he had killed one person who tried to confront him was reaching for his pistol from behind his back and he shot him while he was trying to draw. And then um, the guy who actually shot him from 60 feet away in the head with one shot, um, that case for him to defend himself in that case was over $100,000. So that's really where the, the benefit to the insurance is. Not to mean like... You couldn't get a cheap lawyer to litigate or to defend you. It's just the cost of it. And if, you know, you kind of get what you pay for in legal world. Like if you're depending on a public defender, he's not going to be hiring expert witnesses. He's not going to be 
hiring medical witnesses. He's not going to be taking depositions because all that costs money. You don't want your safety, excuse me, your, uh, your liberty at stake because you can't afford to hire, um, you know, expert witnesses and take depositions. You, you want no expenses to be spared and you want the best legal protection money can buy if you're facing your, your freedom being taken away. You've already faced your life being taken away and being threatened and you made the decision to defend it. Now you got to defend your freedom with your life savings, with your assets, with your home, with your, you know, whatever uh, liquidity you have and also whatever uh, equity you have to mortgage said assets in order to pay for the legal protection. Maybe you're well off enough that you don't have to worry about it. But I would also argue that the more you have, the more you have to lose, right? So if they know they got a big nut to crack here, they're going to go until they drain you dry. It's just the way it is. If you can't get blood from a rock, well, maybe they won't go as far. However, you also don't have the war chest to defend yourself. So if your freedom is on the line and you can get legal and financial protection for 10 bucks a month or 12 bucks a month, at the end of the day, it's 139 bucks a year or something. And that's short money in the grand scheme of things. I get that, you know, we shouldn't have to worry about it in the unlikely event that we would find ourselves ever having to defend ourselves with a firearm. But the good news is most of these insurance companies also will defend you for non-firearm related. It's any weapon of expedience. And you might find yourself in a car having to defend yourself or, uh, you know, having a, a blunt object that you use to defend yourself or, you know, whatever, whatever that is at your disposal. Maybe it's even a non-lethal, like a mace or a pepper spray or a taser that somebody ends up going into cardiac arrest, arrest over. But the bottom line is you didn't ask to be put in this situation. You defended yourself and now you have to defend your uh, freedom with your life savings. That to me is lame. All right. Um, can a civilian buy a Benelli M4 LE? Yes, absolutely. We sell them all the time. As long as it's limited to five round capacity in Massachusetts. In other states, I think you can get seven or nine round capacity. They make extension tubes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when can we expect a decision on the First Circuit Court of Appeals, Massachusetts gun roster? Uh, it's actually not even at the First Circuit. It's, it's at the district court level. So it hasn't even been, the oral arguments haven't even been heard on that. So it's going to be some time. I don't know when. But it, you know, court cases move like glaciers. They take forever and cost a lot of money. I don't think a license to drive should be required. People with licenses can't drive. So what's the difference? We can still track problems by license plates. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sovereign citizens out there that don't think you need to have a license and they present their 
passport whenever they're pulled over. And there's some interesting YouTube videos over that. But um, yeah, check that out. Uh, Florida was green for live fire, no permit required anymore. Yes, sir. That was one of the things that was required for their non-resident license to carry. That's why they didn't recognize the Utah one because it didn't have um, it didn't have a uh, live fire component. So, um, yeah. All right, we're gonna get back to your questions after this. You're listening to Rapid Fire. I'm Toby Leary. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your... Whoops, sorry about that. Carrying a firearm for... Federal delivers a knockout punch with the leading defensive ammo on the market. Federal punch hollow points are accurate and reliable in all defensive situations. When you need reliability designed to provide a balanced mix of effective penetration and expansion, you need punch defensive ammunition from Federal, the leader in nickel-plated brass ammo with a sealed primer to deliver reliable feeding and ignition. Get Federal Punch defensive hollow point ammunition here at Cape Gunworks. Welcome back to Rapid Fire. I'm your host, Toby Leary, and join us each and every week, Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. This week, it's on Thursday because I had a meeting yesterday, so uh, I apologize for the change, but thank you to all the viewers that are willing to adapt and overcome and listen. You guys are winners. You, you just go with the punches, roll with the punches, and uh, so I appreciate that. Um, so getting back to what we were talking about, Michael Day, Jay Austin says, uh, what a great endorsement of your shop. You should send him a thank you card. I don't think I'll be sending him a thank you card. But yeah, it does show how responsible the industry is and what they do. Um, I, you know, this brings up an interesting question. I don't try to hide the fact that one of the largest segments of our training at Cape Gunworks is the license to carry class that is required by the state. There's no question we make money off it, right? I am willing to forego all of that money that we make and earn from government mandated classes in exchange for freedom, in exchange for, uh, the people's right to keep and bear arms being unencumbered by government mandated training requirements. And the it's a necessary evil in my business. We have to do it in order to get customers, right? You can't buy a gun unless you have a license to carry. You can't get a license to carry unless you take a class. But frankly, that is tyranny at work. And it is it is us complying with unconstitutional requirements and encumbrances to our freedoms and taxes on our freedom as well, which again, there's five Supreme Court decisions which would um, say that that's unconstitutional. And yet here we are. So the bottom line is I would much rather have to retool my entire training division of my company to good firearms training 
live fire, concealed carry home defense, uh, tactical uh, classes, home defense classes, countering the mass shooter threat classes, de-escalation classes. Uh, we teach all of these. And those aren't government mandated classes. I think that by government mandated classes, people get inferior training than if they had just taken a good class to begin with, because you always teach to the curriculum. I would say this isn't necessarily true at Cape Gunworks, but I do know of people who have taught classes out of their living room and just made people watch a slideshow for an hour and then issued a certificate. And Michael Day is trying to advocate that's one of the reasons why we need this state police eight-hour class, blah, blah, blah. But regardless, even the state police eight-hour class is going to be taught to the lowest common denominator. You're going to do it so that it doesn't bore people to death. And, you know, frankly, um, I've been through a lot of the NRA classes and been put to sleep in them. Uh, you know, and I know the intention was always good, but really there's no integrity to those classes. I would much rather retool my entire training organization to say, hey, new gun owner class 101, come and take it, learn how to safely and efficiently use your gun, shoot your gun, load your gun, clean your gun, then take pistol handling one on how to get a good grip, stance, sight alignment, sight picture, uh, your basic fundamentals, then take pistol handling two, three, and four, which will bring you all the way to up to up and through drawing from the holster. And then we can tailor make the defense classes like defense outside the home, defense inside the home, uh, you know, uh, intuitive defensive shooting, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm all about education in perpetuity. Like we've never all arrived, you know. Um, I do believe that there is this plausibility principle where you should train on what is most likely to happen. And then once you kind of got that down, you expand your bubble from what is most likely to what is plausible or reasonable to expect could happen. And then spend your training dollars and time, effort, and energy there. Never do I want anybody in government telling me this is what I must do in order to own a gun, period, full stop. And I already indicated that the human being is very good at adaptation and improvisation. So there are people who have bought a gun, never taken a class, and used it for defensive purposes. I don't believe that's the most efficient way to be. Through frequent and realistic training, we can use the power of recognition to respond more efficiently during a dynamic critical incident. That's the definition of the warrior expert theory. So through frequent and realistic training, we can teach our body to respond in an automated response through recognition. What is the recognition? It's seeing a scenario play out in as much context defensively as possible through um, through frequent training. That ha happens to bypass the cognitive and go straight to the central nervous system. It's like when somebody throws a baseball at your face, we've seen what a baseball being thrown to the face can do 
through time, we know what happens. So what happens is we react. We, we'll duck, we'll move, we'll put our hands up defensively, right? That's what happens through frequent realistic training. You only got to get hit in the face with a ball once to know you got to duck or get out of the way or put your hands up defensively. Same thing happens through firearms training. Um, but again, under no circumstances should that be mandatory for government to dictate to us. Um, so anyway, uh, my LTC age ago had live fire. Yeah, so a lot of towns have added on and started to require extra stuff that the government has no business doing. Um, but they're getting away with it because the licensing authority, such as the police department, has said, hey, uh, I think you should have to shoot, show us that you can shoot a gun and in order to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. We had a past chief in this town that said, I just wanted to know why people wanted to have a gun. It's like, well, it's none of your business. There, It's an enumerated right. Um, Duncan says a right delayed. <laughs> That's right, is a right denied. New York, uh, sorry, North Carolina requires eight hours uh, but that includes the time to live fire. Most get it done in less than four. I still see the officer around town very nice and pro 2A. Yeah, so again, there's a lot of states that do require live fire training. And uh, it's it's just ridiculous. But yeah, I know, I know. Don't, don't give me a hard time, Aaron. Uh, he said, it's weird doing this on a Thursday. Pew, pew. All right. Fair enough. I, I apologize. In 2A every day. That's right. I'm licensed to drive, but really don't see the point. Tickets, all the money, crimes will still be judged. Yeah. Uh, could SCOTUS potentially take all the assault weapons ban cases up going on a nationwide and hear them under one case, uh, considered we are not the only state fighting this battle? I don't think so. Um, but all it takes is one to get to the Supreme Court as long as they don't GVR it back to the lower court. If they rule on it, like uh, Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner thinks the one to watch is the Illinois case, thinks that'll get there before the um, the one out in California and the one in Washington and Oregon and et cetera. So if the Illinois one has the best chance of making it to the Supreme Court first, then great, let's watch that. But And that really could have serious implications to us. I just hope they don't do what they did after Bruin with all the other cases, the ones going on in Southern District of California right now where they GVR'd them. And I understand why they did it because they have to instruct the lower courts on how to deal with it. But anyway, um, let's see. Uh, ASD says, um, who can afford 8.2 cents a day? That's a goal membership. We are some type of campaign, a big push to persuade more gun owners to join for family or for four. That's all that shoot. It's $35 a year, two cents a day each. You're pulling at the heartstrings, ASD. Uh, too bad Suzanne Summers passed away because we could have had her. I, I can hear the music and see the faces on her. What was the charity that she represented for less than a cup of coffee a day? And she'd get me every time uh, I sponsored. Uh, you could sponsor a child. And I did. I did that. I, I'd pull out the old debit card and still do uh, sponsor some children. And 
uh, India, actually. But anyway, you're you're right. For way less than a cup of coffee a day, you can be a goal member. And I would say, unfortunately, we have 20,000 goal members, 21,000 goal members. We have 600,000 licensed gun owners in the state of Massachusetts. That's a terrible statistic that there's so few people willing to put their money where their mouth is and help fund the organization that is doing the most in fighting it. And I know there's people that say, oh, they don't do enough. But wait a minute. Are you a member? Oh, just checking. Because if you're not and you're screaming at them for not doing enough, then maybe you should be a member, give them a little more resources to do enough. But, you know, they do plenty, in my opinion. Uh, they do as much as they can. They keep us up to date. They keep us apprised of what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's tough to, um, it's tough to do what you can do, everything that needs to be done with a limited budget. And I think they only have six people that work in the entire organization. So, Anyway, they're doing great work, in my opinion. All right, real quick. Uh, protesters today demonstrated outside Colt Manufacturing in West Hartford on Thursday morning. And it was a large group of people um, that went there and protested at the entrance of Colt in West Hartford um, this morning as a result of a nationwide demonstration. I guess they're doing this a lot of different places today. And people from several groups came together as part of the nationwide call to action to shut it down for Palestine. They had signs that said, stop arming, arming genocide and shut it down for Palestine. And, and dozens blocked the entrances to the company while workers were arriving. Thursday morning, protesters across the country picketed at companies that they say profit from the war in the Middle East. According to the Department of Defense website, Colt Manufacturing was awarded a more than $9.3 million car contract for barrels, barrel uh, carbines for the army. I don't know what that like barrel carbine is. Um, people who participated did not want to identify by name or for fear of retaliation. They said they are anti-war and anti-Islamophobia protesters and want the company to pause production. They said they're not against the workers, but want a change from Colt. Um, so I find this to be an interesting phenomenon. You have, you have Colt, or let's back way up. You have Israel, who became a nation in 1948. And I know this is a very controversial subject, but Israel became a nation in 1948. It was the first time in human history that after 2,000, maybe 3,000 really, years, that a nation ceased to exist. And for the, let's say 3,000 years ago, they ceased to exist as a nation. And then for 1,000 years, they lived in Israel, but were controlled by, you know, fill in the blank, the Greeks, the Romans, the Medes, the Persians. And then the diaspora happened. This was after Christ, when the Jews were scattered across the world. And 
they lived in different regions throughout Europe, throughout Africa, all around the world. And then for the next 2,000 years, their homeland sat in contention by many different empires along the way. We know about Rome, we know about the Turks, we know about the Ottoman Empire, we know about the Byzantine Empire, we know about, um, you know, there was uh, all kinds of people that laid claim. There was the Crusaders, there was the, um, you know, uh, the, the uh, all kinds of different, let's just put it this way, warring factions for the nation of Israel and the Holy Land. Let's call it the Holy Land. Palestine never existed as a country ever in the history of mankind. There were people who lived there and then it was always in turmoil. I stood on the Via Della Rosa, which had been excavated down and they had, they had uh, determined that Jerusalem had been built up and destroyed to ruin 35 times. So it was ironically, um, Jerusalem, Salam is the city of peace, right? Peace. The city of peace had been destroyed and rebuilt 35 times when I stood at the level of the Via Della Rosa. And the war has continued to happen there for 2000 years. 1948, after World War II, when the genocide of the Jews by the by Hitler and the Nazis and the and uh, all those who were complicit in the Nazi war, Japan and um, Italy, um, they took the diaspora, the international community led by the United States and Britain, and they returned the Jew to their homeland, their their historic homeland. And for the first time in human history, they stood on the ground that Abraham, their ancient ancestor, possessed and that kings of uh, Israel ruled for a thousand years um, and reestablished their nation spoke their native tongue and began to take everyone who was outside of that and give them instant citizenship. In the process of that, Palestinians were displaced who lived there, Arabs who lived there. Some went to refugee camps in, uh, in Lebanon, but none went to surrounding Arab nations. Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, Iraq, Iran, none of them absorbed a single refugee. But Israel did. Israel absorbed the vast majority of displaced refugees from the establishment of Israel. They also immediately got attacked when they declared their independence and they've been fighting for their existence ever since. There's been times when they were on their way to temple on the holy day, Yom Kippur, and were attacked again by three different nations at one time and getting caught literally with their pants down. 
and had to fight for their independence again. This has been happening. Every time they've won and established more ground, more control, like the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan and whatnot. And so every time they get more area as a result of winning a war, when they are attacked, they give the, the refugees dignity by allowing them to work in Israel allowing them to hold parliamentary positions in government and allowing them to have a sovereign rule over themselves. They, they were ruled by the PLO, then they, now they're ruled by Hamas. And in the last 12, 15 years that Hamas has ruled them, they have done nothing to better their position on the human world stage. They have come up with zero uh, productive measures in medicine, in oil and gas production, in uh, you know education, in the arts, in the science, in the medical fields. They've done zero. All they've done is foster their hatred for the Jew and claim to be uh, oppressed when no other Arab nation who speaks their language, who worships the way they do, and who identifies culturally the same have gone to the extent that Israel has gone to. And what do they get for it? They get attacked, they get bombed, they get civilians murdered and babies taken as hostage. They get RPGs shot into civilian vehicles. They get hostages taken, they get raped, killed, maimed, they get attacked. And constant barrages of rockets being pounded into Israel. Israel defends itself. And what happens? The international community and America says to them, you can't do that. Let's call for a ceasefire. That doesn't even make sense. If you're attacked and you're in, in a war that you didn't ask to be in, you fight till you win. You don't fight until you, you say, oh, we had enough, or we're going to live with more bombs raining down on us or more drones or more you know paragliders being brought into our cities and civilians being killed and murdered. So the, the point I'm trying to make is now we are now witnessing the entire world turn against Israel in a biblical way. And I'm sorry that this isn't what you sign up for rapid fire to hear. But if we don't defend Israel and we have people in this country now saying we have to shut off our aid to Israel because of their defense of their borders by hostile terrorist organizations funded by our archenemy, Iran, and Israel is the only democracy in the whole area. There's 6 million Jews surrounded by 60 million Arabs that all want to push them into the sea. And love him or hate him, but Donald Trump made some great headway in peace agreements in between Israel and uh, several other Arab nations while he was president. And he did it three different times and he never got any accolades by the world stage or by anyone in the world. And, uh, you know, frankly, he did more to bring peace and stability to the region than any other president. But here we are telling people they can't defend their borders after they have been 
Uh, and I'm not saying that they're, they're 100% right all the time. No one is. But the point is, they have done more for the Palestinian displaced people than any other nation in their surrounding area. This is a country the size of New Jersey being surrounded by massive landmass of 60 million Arabs that outnumber them 10 to 1. And every few years, they all want to push them into the sea and they have to defend themselves. And now uh, there was a video circulating of the Israeli government officials handing out AR-15s to civilians. And America says to them, you better not be giving those to civilians, American weapons to civilians, because if you are, we're going to shut off the export of these weapons to you. It is unbelievable. When Ukraine got invaded by, by Russia, they started to give out AK-47s and AR-15s and fully automatic M-16s to civilian population, and we applauded. Bravo, bravo. Now Israel's doing the same after disarming the southern part of the country, which was obviously a huge mistake. And so anyway, uh, I just thought I'd comment on that because I see these protests taking place throughout the country. Now they're disrupting businesses like Colt Manufacturing um, in order to say, you know, shut it down for Palestine and all this stuff, when really there should be a unanimous voice uh, in defense of Israel against terrorist attacks against civilians. I don't understand how this is hard to determine. When the planes struck the towers in, on 9-11, there was no right to fight back against those people who did that. And yet here we are being critical of people who are trying to defend their borders and their homeland. And uh, frankly, there's a lot less people in Israel than there are in America. Um, to see a thousand people killed out of a population of six or seven million, that is unbelievable. That is like 15 or 20 or 30,000 people dying on September 11th instead of 3,000 dying. That's what that ratio looks like. And frankly, the fact that they're attacking unarmed civilians proves they only have one thing, and that is hatred, pure evil hatred for other human beings. They have no desire to peacefully get along. They are ruthless butchers and hate. Uh, they are enemies of mankind. And so that's all I'm going to say about that. Sorry about the rant. All right. Michael, 9mm carbine versus fixed mag AR-15 for home defense. I've read if and when Massachusetts assault weapon is overturned, the dark storm mag could be exchanged. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I like having both options. But if my option is a fixed mag carbine for home defense versus a detachable mag 9mm carbine, I want the detachable mag every time. Um, I love the fixed mag carbine for the fact that you get a good quality rifle, brand new, with all the features you want. Collapsible stock, you know, threaded muzzle, flash hide or whatever. But anyway, um, that's what I meant by that. I'll clarify that. I'm glad you like that, New York. Um, I've been to Israel twice and uh, um, it is the only place I have ever visited. I've been many, many countries and it was the only other country where I felt 
very much at home when I got off the plane and uh, felt like I could live there if I was forced. <laughs> I wouldn't go there in lieu of being in uh, America, but it's the only place I, I said I could probably make it happen here, make it work here, uh, just because of my love of history and my love of Israel. And uh, the, it, it truly is a beautiful country. Um, and Steve, I agree. I think that you know every president prior to Trump promised to do it, and no one did it, and Trump did it, and uh, it makes sense. Why wasn't it in Jerusalem? That is the the spiritual capital of Israel for all of time. Anyway, most people don't really know the history of the region. I would agree with that, and. Uh, yeah, they they are gonna. I guess they uh, were gonna censure Rashida Talib, and uh, I don't know if they did yet or not. But I saw something about that. Um, let's see, uh, forty six plus attacks on U.S. military proxies, uh, uh, U.S. military by Iran proxies, and I don't see Biden deterring Iran. Um, yeah, they. Um, it's crazy. I tell you one thing, uh, when I was in Israel, I've been there twice. The first time was three and a half years into the seven-year Muslim intifada. And uh, we were the only tour bus there. We were the only tour there. Our tour guide was literally in tears thanking us for coming because, you know, there was nobody, um, nobody uh, that was going there. And when we were there, uh, there were guns everywhere. Every soldier had their AR-15 slung over the back, and the police were armed for bear. They had plate carriers, rifles slung, extra mags in the pouch, you know, armor on front and back, Kevlar helmets, and they were everywhere. Um, when uh, we would go downtown into the um, old city, um, it was it was interesting, you know, it you could feel the tension in the air, but we didn't have any encounter. But every day that we were there, some sort of terrorist activity happened, um, whether it was a, you know, cafe was blown up or uh, we had there were four IDF soldiers that were taken hostage on the northern border with Lebanon. And so anyway, it was very interesting. And then fast forward a couple of years later, the Intifada had basically ended. And I went again, and uh, never did I feel unsafe in the country. Um, there was a couple of times when, like, an interesting encounter happened, but um, I just thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And uh, I felt like they took personal and safety to uh, another level. Um, I flew LL Airlines, which had a terrorist attack in the 70s, they vowed never again, and they haven't, and they took airport security to a whole nother level. So anyway, that was a pretty eye-opening experience. And uh, living in mass as a pro to a supporter is hard enough. Now the sun is gone. Ah, I know. 4.30, it's dark again, and here we go. But have no fear. Rapid fire is here. So that's a little sunshine ray of light on the dark community here in Massachusetts for you, LARPer trader. 
Hopefully you'll appreciate it. And hopefully you guys will tune in again next week. I appreciate everyone who's been here. Um, love you all. And uh, man, this is one of the highlights of my week is getting to talk to you guys and take your questions. And uh, I love talking about guns and self-defense and everything else. So God bless. We'll see you next week. Uh, hit us up in the chat if you, you know, leave a message on the rapid fire line, 508-444-2120. And we'll see you next week. God bless. I'm Toby Leary. Take care.